In April 2015, 30-year-old Jesse Waters' lifeless body was discovered just off Highway 18, just south of Oglala in South Dakota. Even though her life was marred by domestic violence, there are still no arrests made in the connection with her death, and her family is still seeking justice. This is a story of Jesse Waters. Hey guys, this is Ash. This is Shiashi. This is Maggie, and you're listening to We Are Resilient. Okay, today's episode, like many others that we've covered, it involves a severe case of domestic violence and intimate partner violence. And before we really dive into uh, the story today, I wanted to give us a chance to talk about domestic violence and particularly, particularly around the statement of why did they stay? And it's a hard topic to talk about because unless you've been in an abusive relationship, you may never understand why women stay. It's easy to look in from the outside and say, that would never be me. I know because I thought that and it was me. So I think something that people, a lot of people don't realize too is sometimes it can be dangerous to leave an abuser in most domestic violence situations. The woman unfortunately relies on the man for something, whether it be, you know, income or maybe just, you know, navigating the world with children. Um, there's a lot of things that play into it that I think people don't really think about when they say, why didn't she just leave? So in looking for resources for this particular topic, I came across the hotline.org, which it's a website that I've used numerous times in doing research for these episodes because it's a really great resource for um, domestic violence survivors, advocates, victims. It's a lot of sources for if you have a friend that's dealing with domestic violence, how you can be a support. It's just a really good website and it gave a really good comprehensive list of the reasons why people stay in abusive relationships. And I really thought this would be a great opportunity to have this discussion, particularly with this episode, because in this case, she does go back to her abuser numerous times. And what I'm hoping to accomplish is we can eliminate any kind of finger pointing or victim blaming, because we see a lot of that in these cases as well, because people don't understand why women go back to their abusers. And it's never just as easy as, well, she should just leave him. Well, our last story too was very similar. She didn't necessarily go back to her abuser in a relationship, but she went to the abuser's home thinking that, you know, under false pretenses that she went there thinking that things would be okay when it really wasn't. Absolutely. When you covered Candace Kehoe's case, it really struck a nerve with me because she was criticized for going to her abuser's home. And I'm just like, the complexities of dealing with an abuser is hard to understand unless you have walked in those shoes. Again, it's easy to look from the outside in and make judgments if you've never had that experience before. So I'm going to read some examples from the list that was made about why people stay in abusive relationships. And as always, I will put the link in the show notes. The first reason listed is fear. A person will likely be afraid of consequences if they decide to leave their relationship, either out of fear of their partner's actions or concern over their own ability to be independent. And I think, Maggie, you've spoken on this many times about fear being a huge factor in a lot of these abuse cases that we cover. Yeah, and I think people expect like, you know, if if someone's been violent towards you, you know, you should be fearful in every way against them. But mm -hmm. abusers are manipulative. And even though they might have, you know, 
them something one time, a lot of times what happens is, you know, they'll promise change behavior or they'll apologize and have remorse. And then people think that things are different. And then a lot of times they're not. Exactly. It's like a means to get that person back. And that's interesting because on this list, it does have normalized abuse on here. And it says if someone grew up in an environment where abuse was common, they may not know what healthy relationships look like. As a result, they may not recognize that their partner's behaviors are unhealthy or abusive. So it's like that cycle you guys keep talking about that it just perpetuates and someone may not know any different. Shame is a big one. It says it could be difficult for someone to admit that they've been or are being abused. They may feel that they've done something wrong, that they deserve the abuse, or that experiencing abuse is a sign of weakness. Remember that blame shifting is a common tactic that their partner may use and could reinforce a sense of responsibility for their partner's abusive behaviors. The next one is intimidation. A survivor may be intimidated into staying in a relationship by verbal or physical threats or threats to spread information, including secrets or confidential details, for example, revenge porn. It also mentions low self-esteem, lack of resources, having a disability, even immigration status, saying people who are undocumented may fear that reporting abuse will affect their immigration status. Even cultural context. Um, It says traditional customs or beliefs may influence someone's decision to stay in an abusive situation, whether held by the survivor or by their family and community. It also lists children. Many survivors may feel guilty or responsible for disrupting their familial unit. Keeping the families together may not only be something that a survivor may value, but may also be used as a tactic by their partner used to guilt a survivor into staying. Well, I think a lot of the stories we see, that's the case, you know, it, mm-hmm. we always see young mothers who are seemingly, you know, just trying to make their families work and it ends up turning tragic. And a big reason why people will stay is love. It says experiencing abuse and feeling genuine care for a partner who is causing harm are not mutually exclusive, which I thought was a very powerful statement. You know, survivors often still have strong, intimate feelings for their abusive partner. They may have children together, want to maintain their family, or the person abusing them may simply be charming, especially at the beginning of a relationship. And the survivor may hope that their partner will return to being that person. Yeah, it's just part of the cycle they go through. It's, you know, love and affection, and then it's abuse and torment, you know? Exactly. And I'm telling you all this because before I go into this story and before you judge a person or question why they stay, you got to remember that there are many, many factors here that we don't see or understand. Jesse Renee Waters was born on April 11th, 1984 in Pine Ridge, South Dakota to Raymond Waters Sr. and Mary Ann Lone Elk. In April 2015, just three weeks before her death, Jesse had filed for a temporary protection order through the Oglala Sioux Tribal Court against her boyfriend at the time, Dwayne Benson. Now, at the time, they were currently living together, and even though the protection order had been granted, the family admits it had been disregarded by both Jesse and Dwayne as they had continued to live together and be seen together in public. Now, I know what you're thinking. How do you enforce it, and, and how does that protect anyone? You know, so that makes the situation really difficult. Now, in the protection order obtained by Native Sun News, Jesse had stated that the cost for filing was that Dwayne had been hitting and kicking her. And according to this document, they had been romantically and domestically involved for 11 months by that time. 
In her petitioner statement, Jessie wrote about the day of April 7th, 2015, stating, quote, This morning I was hit and slapped by my boyfriend because I wanted to go see my grandma and check on her. He began to throw things at me and holler at me. And honestly, guys, when I read that, it's just, it just goes to show how such little and minor things can trigger such a violent episode. It's really scary. Now, Jesse continued in her petitioner statement, quote, Some mornings he gets up because he has a bad dream and he'll slap me behind the head or cuss at me. I currently have a shiner as a result of that incident, which occurred on Saturday. And what she's referring to is Saturday, April 4th, just three days prior to her filing this order of protection. And she continued in the statement sharing that she had known Dwayne for over 20 years, but only began dating a year prior and that it was only about a month after they began dating, the relationship turned violent. That's how fast it happened. Were they like, did they grow up together? I have no idea. How old are they? Or how old is she? She was only 30 years old when she passed. I wonder if he had any other relationships prior to her. Oh, I don't know. I didn't read anything in the research that said anything about prior relationships. Um, it did say that her sisters had shared with Native Sun News about their first time meeting Dwayne at an Oglala Nation powwow. And they shared how distant and cold they felt he was. And they shared about how Jesse would confide in them about the abuse that she was enduring. And even shared with the Native Sun News a story about the time when Jesse came to see her grandma. And when they asked where Dwayne was, she told them that he had beat her up the night before. And when he came back the following morning, she wouldn't kiss him, so he beat her up again. I just hate that. I mean, they were only together for a short time and that there were so many signs, you know? Yeah. And, you know, at this point, you know, she had at least her sisters to confide in with the things that she was going through. You know, they said during this conversation, she had a black eye and on her forearm was a fading yellow bruise with obvious bite marks. You know, this was something she was dealing with even two months before her death. Were any of these incidents ever, like, reported to the police, or was he ever charged? No, I don't know if he was actually ever charged with any of the violence that that this petitioner's statement is expressing. You know, it's just really clear that uh, despite the alleged violence that she was enduring, she didn't know how to leave. Well, it's just like anything else. You can tell people over and over, especially your friends, because you can see it. You see it from an outside perspective and you know it and you can tell them and tell them and tell them. But until they realize it themselves, they won't understand it. Does that make sense? Because mm-hmm. I don't know. I've been in those situations before where I've told my friends over and over. And until they realized it and seen it and felt it themselves, that they finally realized and understood what everybody else seen. There's like a point and Shashi, maybe you, you can kind of relate to this, too. There's a point in a very toxic and abusive relationship where you finally realize, like, this is enough. But a lot of times it takes years and years or months and months to come to that realization. Mm -hmm. You know, and I agree. We don't always know what someone's rock bottom is or what that catalyst is going to be when someone wakes up and says, you know what, I don't deserve to be treated like this. But until that happens... And we know somebody, you know, if we know somebody that's dealing with domestic violence, all we can do is be a support for them, be someone they could talk to and just remind them that they are loved, they are worthy of being loved, and they don't deserve the bad things that are happening to them. 
Now, her petitioner's statement goes on to read, quote, For the past 11 months, I have endured abuse emotionally, physically, and verbally to no avail. She had also expressed fear she had for her two older sons that she had from previous relationships, citing that she was afraid to bring them around Dwayne. And it was just really sad to read because it sounded, it sounds like her relationship with Dwayne really affected her relationship with her kids and caused some strain there up until her untimely death. On the day of April 30th, 2015 in Oglala, according to feedback received by Jesse's family, a small group of people, including Jesse, Dwayne, and others, were partying throughout the morning and afternoon. In the late afternoon, Dwayne and Jesse were sent to get beer, leaving in his 4x4 pickup truck. And this would be the last time anyone saw Jesse alive. Four hours later, on the other side of a ridge, on a fire road 1.4 miles off of Highway 18, just south of Oglala, Jesse's lifeless body would be found lying curled up in a fetal position with two large puddles of blood nearby. Native Sun News were shown the pictures taken at the morgue of Jesse's body being prepared for burial, and it showed that her body was covered in bruises, scrapes, stitches, and what appears to be tire marks on her abdomen. It also should be noted that Jesse was three months pregnant at the time of her death. To date, there have been no arrests made in connection with Jesse's death, and her death is considered suspicious. Wow. Okay. Yeah, she's got tire marks on her bed. Yeah. Like anyone could deduce that. This is so crazy because there's so many stories where this happens and it it's it's crazy. I feel like this happens mm-hmm. all the time, like hit and runs or fell on the side of the road and there's no evidence. Like I don't understand this at all. Now what's interesting was prior to her death in December twenty fourteen, um, Dwayne had actually set their mobile home on fire and her dog was still inside the home at the time but she wasn't and so jesse had lost all of her belongings her dog and was essentially left homeless now in april 2016 about a year after her death Dwayne was actually sentenced to 57 months in prison for burning down their home and so he pled guilty in federal court and served his time for arson So he was arrested and did serve time, but it was only for arson for that incident back in December 2014. But he's not a suspect at all? Nowhere in my research was he listed as a suspect. But in doing my research, I did find some interesting information about Pine Ridge. The Pine Ridge Indian Reservation is nearly 3,500 square miles and is largely made up of isolated prairie lands and rolling hills. Now, high brush and empty fire roads are scattered throughout the reservation, which makes it difficult to find or locate bodies of deceased or missing persons. And I did read an interesting fact that said between January and June 2022, tribal law enforcement received 285 reports of missing persons. 308 were gun-related calls and 49 reports of rape. And this was according to Oglala Sioux officials. And it also said there are typically only five tribal officers on any given shift. And response time for weapon-related calls can be anywhere from 40 minutes to an hour. You know, we've both been there and we know how Mm -hmm. desperate it is. So to think about that many people potentially being missing or, you know, that many bodies being out there, like it, Mm -hmm. it pretty much would be impossible to find them. 
Again, criminal jurisdiction in any country is complicated and depends on whether the suspect, victim, or both are Native American and where the crime occurs. Um, in an AP News article I read, it stated that these types of crimes have become increasingly common on reservations. We know this, you know, from our research as well. And for Pine Ridge, it said um, only 33 officers and eight criminal investigators are responsible for over 100,000 emergency calls each year across the reservation. And that's it. 33 officers and eight criminal investigators. Yeah. And this is it's such a huge landmass to cover. Yeah. I read that the size of the reservation, um, somebody compared it and it said it's like roughly um, the size of the state of Connecticut. I mean, you think about us in Cherokee, we, we're very blessed. We have a lot, you know, a lot of resources and we have a lot of police force here, right? Because it's so spread out. We've covered stories like this that it's impossible for these officers to cover that amount of land. And we know things that happen like murders and crimes because people know they can get away with it. Nobody's coming or it's hours before they get there. Well, and it's interesting you guys mentioned this because, again, the tribe, um, the Oglala Sioux tribe had said that the officers, investigators are all federally funded and they actually sued the BIA, which is the Bureau of Indian Affairs, um, alleging that the U.S. is not complying with its treaty obligations nor its trust responsibility uh, by failing to provide adequate law enforcement to address the public safety crisis on the Pine Ridge Reservation. So this is still playing out in court as we're as we're speaking about it today because they're saying, "Look, this is there's a lot going on here. We need help, and we're not getting the help we need." It's That's just crazy point. too because it's not Pine Ridge isn't the only reservation that suffers from this. Like think about the Navajo mm-hmm. cases we've covered where it's very similar. The, I mean, in LMA Begay, like the police didn't respond for over two hours is insane. That is insane. You know, it's, it's a lot of stuff that we could easily take for granted, especially when it comes to emergency services and how quick we get it. And then you got these areas that are in the United States, like I said, and it takes two hours, an hour, 40 minutes for people to get help, you know, in these dire situations. It's, it's, it's really, really sad. It feels because there's there's like so many aspects to MMIW that need to be addressed. And there's like there's so much work to be done because, you know, we go from just domestic violence awareness to how stuff plays out in court to jurisdiction issues to not having enough police to to help these people and help these women in these dire situations. Like it's like, where do you start? You know what I mean? Because it just feels so daunting because of how massive this issue is and how many different areas. I think a big part of it is trauma is a huge part of Indigenous communities. And it's just going to take people breaking that cycle. It takes someone in your family to break that cycle of abuse. You're setting a good example, saying I love you, showing affection to your family members, communicating because that's not what that's not how Native communities are. We're very reserved. We're very keep it to yourselves. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so it's taken breaking those cycles that were bestowed upon us centuries ago due to boarding schools, due to colonization, due to being ashamed to speak your language, pricing your culture, because we don't do that today. Because what Native American communities are about and tribes is about community. We support each other. We're there for everybody. But a lot of communities aren't our tribes aren't like that anymore because we're so we've been traumatized and not mm-hmm. to say that each one of us have experienced you know 
trauma is just the trauma that has been passed down generation by generation. I think it's just going to take people realizing it and you're going to have to break that cycle yourself within your family, within your circle. And then it, hopefully it can spread because I don't know what the answer is. I don't know how we can tell people, don't do this, don't do that. You need to do this and do that because we can't tell people what to do, but we can show them. We can show who we're around and who we have an, who we have an influence on to be those to be the things that we need to be and who we used to be as, as Indigenous people. Because traditionally, the Cherokee people, if you abuse a child, hurt a child, murdered a child, they put you to death because that was the future of the Cherokee Nation. And you couldn't do anything to harm the future of the Cherokee Nation. And so centuries ago, if you abused a child, you were put to death. That was it. There was no judge, trial, or jury. It was, that's that's the burden. Mm-hmm. And that was the custom because that's, that's how important we as people seen our children. Well, that, and it's also going to take society understanding the magnitude of the issues. Why did, why haven't we heard about this woman being found on the side of the road who got ran over and left for dead? Like, why, why is that not something that is important for society to want to find justice for? And that's part of it too, is, you know, we fight ourselves internally, but we also fight external factors too. There's, there's a lot that needs to be done. I mean, a lot with our exter- with the out, you know, the external outside world outside of our tribe and our land and our reservations. But there's also a lot of work internally within our tribes and with our people that need to be done. It's just sometimes when I really sit and think about it, it just feels really daunting. The level of work in all areas that that needs to get done. When I was looking up Jesse and trying to find information about her, I didn't find a lot of information about her personally. But I thought what was really interesting was what I did find was comments from her sister that said that Jesse, even in her darkest moments, would use laughter as a means of distraction to the brutal abuse she was allegedly enduring and that she would minimize the abuse so her family would not worry about her. You know, and we think about Native humor and things like that. And it's just it does come into play a lot, especially when you're going through dark moments, because that's how we get through dark moments. Well, that and it's that's such like a typical like what I envision a Cherokee woman to do is to protect her family, even though Mm -hmm. she's suffering. Her main goal was protect her family to know that they would not worry. Yeah. And to think of how much she was enduring on her own. So um, in my research, I did find that leaving an abuser is the most dangerous time for a victim of domestic violence. One study found in interviews with men who have killed their wives that either threats of separation by their partner or actual separations uh, were the most often the precipitating events that led to the murder. So they interviewed men who actually killed their wives and they said, yeah, she was threatening to leave me or she left me. And that was like the catalyst. Terrifying, you know, because at the same time, women who are in these situations have people constantly telling her to leave him, just leave him. And it's not as simple as that. Because either research says leaving an abuser is the most dangerous time for a victim. You know what I mean? So it's like, so, so then what do they do? They're forced to stay. So at this point, you know, her children are growing up without a mom. There are still no concrete answers as to what happened to her that day. Mm, it's sad. It is really sad and unfair. Maybe something will happen, you know, just like in the Jamie Yazzie case, her boyfriend was eventually found guilty and he was charged. So maybe, maybe there's always hope. Yeah. And I think what helps too, and I think what 
we're doing with the podcast, again, you know, our entire goal is to bring awareness. And that's what we want to do, bring awareness to these cases. And I'm hoping that this awareness will help people help get some traction going, you know, even if it's a smallest amount or bring new eyes to it or have people questioning it and asking questions and having those discussions, maybe just kind of getting some renewed attention. That's all we can hope for, you know, when we cover these cases is at least some kind of renewed attention. So a victim's reasons for staying with their abusers are extremely complex and in most cases are based on the reality that their abuser will follow through with the threats they have used to keep them trapped. An abuser will hurt or kill them. They will hurt or kill the kids. They will win custody of the children. They will harm or kill pets or others. They will ruin their victim financially. The list goes on. Uh, As years pass by, Jesse's family continues to plead for answers and for Jesse's story to be told. When I read about all that Jesse had endured, my heart hurts for her. The life of her and her unborn child were stolen and her children are now growing up without a mother. Jesse deserves justice. Thank you for listening to We Are Resilient. For links to information found for this episode, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at We Are Resilient Podcast. Send us an email at weareresilientpod at gmail.com or visit us at www.war-podcast.com.